everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And we are getting down, we are getting low, we are on the DL, we are going beneath the surface today to talk about The Descent, one of our most requested films ever. And possibly one of my favorite films ever. Alex and I have been looking forward to recording this episode. We've been maybe a little bit intimidated because we love this film so much, but we know you're really excited to talk about it, and so are we, and that's our episode today. I think what is so singular about The Descent is it doesn't innovate a lot of stuff. Not really when you get down to the brass tacks of it, but it is easily, I think you can dub it a contemporary horror classic, if not a horror classic. And the reason for that is because it's actually quite simple, but really effective. It nails everything it sets out to do in a really easy shorthand. The characters are who they are. We don't need a lot of backstory to them. They show who they are through their actions. And there is an economy of storytelling in this, which I think Neil Marshall, the director and writer, really nailed and I don't know if he's ever nailed it to this extent since. I haven't been keeping up with all of his films. The film I'd kind of say is my second favorite of his is probably Dog Soldiers. And that's the other kind of pure horror film. And then he got into more genre films. Like there is uh, Centurion, I believe he did right after The Descent with Michael Fassbender before he was Michael Fassbender. And he's done a few others. But The Descent is his calling card. And why wouldn't it be? It's a great classic film. He also did Doomsday, which I don't hate. I actually feel like it's kind of one of my guilty pleasures. It's not wonderful, but it's really interesting visually. This is one that he directed and he didn't write. I actually haven't seen Dog Soldiers, but my understanding is that after the success of Dog Soldiers, he was approached to do another horror film and was like, I don't really want to be labeled a horror guy. And then he puts out this brilliant film that occupies a space in most people's top five list, definitely mine. And what strikes me as odd about this film is nobody has really tried to imitate it. Nobody has tried to do the same thing. And even the sequel, which we'll discuss a little bit later on, not so much, but maybe just a little bit, doesn't tick off the same boxes at all. And I think that's because there's nowhere to hide in The Descent, even though these women are running around a big-ass cave. In terms of storytelling, in terms of narrative, in terms of design, in terms of creature design, there's nothing – like, there are no smoke and mirrors to it. Everything is as it should be. And everything it sets out to do, I truly believe it accomplishes. And again, it's that easy shorthand with the narrative and with the characters and with the creatures and how they all interact with each other. I think when you see films that are really bloated, and kind of confused, and even if you like them, there's a lot of stuff to hide behind. And in the way this story is told in an hour and 40 minutes, there's nowhere else to go but this story. And the tension, the editing, everything that brings it together is so tight and terrifying, but a really satisfying watch. There's also very interesting themes. We're going to get into the ones that speak to us. But in doing my research for this episode, I was so impressed by the wealth of analyses available online, the variety of these analyses. People are picking up really interesting things to this. So if you love the film as much as we do, we really hope you enjoy this episode. But we also invite you to check out all the other theories out there and analyses. It's a deeply personal film, I think, and I'm really eager to hear what you guys have to say about it. So without further ado, let us descend into The Descent. 
Now just okay. give me a smile. Do you know, are you sure we're going the right way? I've never been lost in my life. <laughs> There's only one way out of this chamber, and that's down the pipe. I'm stuck! I can't breathe! Okay, Sarah, you have to calm down. I'm coming, I'm coming back! Okay? Okay. Okay, move! Now! Now! This is not good, guys. Can we get out of here? Which way? centers around Sarah, who loses her husband and daughter in a car accident on the way home from a white water rafting expedition she went on with her friends Beth and Juno. One year after the accident, she reunites with Beth and Juno, as well as Becca, Sam, and Juno's protege Holly for a spelunking trip. The group descends into the cave, and after a narrow passageway collapses, they learn that Juno has led them into an unexplored cave system in the hopes of discovering it and potentially naming it after Sarah's dead daughter. The group is pissed, obviously, and very scared, but they discover archaic climbing equipment embedded in the cave walls as well as a cave painting that suggests that there's another exit. However, before they can get very far, they're besieged by pale humanoid creatures who attack the group, sending them scattered and lost in the dark. Holly is killed by the creatures, and Juno accidentally stabs Beth in the throat with her pickaxe and flees the scene, but not before Beth grabs hold of Juno's pendant. Juno reunites with Sam and Becca for a while, and they search for Sarah before the two sisters succumb to more creature attacks. Meanwhile, Sarah finds Beth dying, and Beth reveals that Juno not only wounded her and abandoned her to die, she was also having an affair with Sarah's late husband, Paul, who gave her the pendant. She begs Sarah to put her out of her misery, and so she does. Eventually, Sarah and Juno are reunited, and Juno lies to Sarah about having seen Beth die. The two team up to defeat several creature attacks until Sarah confronts Juno about Beth as well as the affair. When another swarm of creatures approach, Sarah stabs Juno in the leg with her pickaxe and leaves her behind. She falls down a hole and dreams that she's escaped, but wakes up back in the cave, trapped as the screams of the creatures grow louder. Now, the ending I just described is the original UK version of the ending, and when it was screened in the US, it was a little bit different. 
I had the great fortune to actually see it in theaters when it had, I don't think it was like a full-on wide release, but it had a limited release kind of in major cities. So I saw it when I was still living in Montreal, and I saw the ending where Sarah gets out, she runs for it, finds the car, drives her a bit, then almost gets in an accident, pulls over, freaks out, throws up is kind of freaking out and crying and trying to pull herself together. And then there's that one last great jump scare where she turns around and Juno's ghost corpse thing is sitting next to her. She screams. It cuts to black. There is a lot of contention around that ending. The majority, if not all of the people I know, prefer the UK ending, the more ambiguous one where Sarah is sitting with this vision or the actual ghost of her daughter and there's the birthday cake because at the beginning of the film, Sarah is talking to her daughter in the car about what kind of birthday does she want to have. Would you come around to help us plan your birthday party? Okay. You can invite any boys this time. <laughs> I think that's a fine ending. I like the ambiguity to it, but I actually really don't mind the North American ending. I think it has a solid gut punch. And I don't know for me if what's driving Sarah at the end is the death of her daughter as much as it is reconciling what her life actually was and what she doesn't realize that she lost because she only just learned about Gino's affair. She only just learned that everything she kind of thought to be true is still the same but slightly skewed. So I like that the final image in the North American ending is between Gino and Sarah because that was definitely the relationship I feel the most connection to in that film. I can't say that I agree. I think I prefer the other ending. It's so nihilistic. It's so much worse to think that she never got out. And the sequel picks up off the U.S. theatrical ending where Sarah is out and they find some crazy conceit to allow her to go back into the cave, which is preposterous, but never mind. I prefer the extended ending just because it is so dark and so nihilistic and it just really leaves you with a sense of lingering dread. Now, cinematically, it's just a beautiful film. Like, I love its pacing. I love that it kicks off with a bang and is just relentless throughout. I love the soundtrack, those dramatic orchestral chords that really emphasize the dramatic aspects of the film. Like, it's a tragedy. It's very much a tragedy. We're not here for jump scares and gruesome kills, even though those are delivered aplenty. But the film is really about these women and the dynamics of the group. And I think what The Descent is so successful at is that it portrays so many different types of women and the odd peculiarities of relationships between uh, maybe not only women, but of everyone. You know, when you get together with a group of friends, you have a different relationship to each person there. And those relationships kind of show themselves. And they show themselves with this really interesting shorthand in real life and just as with The Descent. That's right. And I spent a little bit of time trying to think of what this film might look like if it had a mixed gender cast. And from what I understand, that was originally the intention of the film. And then Neil Marshall was like, what? if we made it all women. I don't see a whole lot of horror movies that feature all women. So this film effectively just smashes that Bechdel test where there are virtually no men in this film except for Paul, which we see a little bit in the beginning, and he's kind of a dick. But even if this film had have had a mixed cast, you know, Hollywood has such a hard time with platonic relationships. I don't think they would have been able to steer away from some kind of romantic intrigue, some kind of drama in that respect. So the fact that it's a bunch of girls relating to each other the way female platonic friends do is so refreshing. 
And the camera doesn't sexualize the women, not in my mind. I believe we've mentioned this theory before on the podcast, but it's Laura Mulvey's theory of the male gaze. And she wrote about this in her really famous essay, especially in film studies, called Visual Pleasure in Narrative Cinema. And it goes on, it gets into deep Freudian analysis. Some of it is kind of heady, but it essentially states that the gaze of the camera on a woman is a sexualized male gaze. It's objectifying her. And Mulvey uses a lot of examples from film noir. Also, there are plenty of examples of films from Psycho to Transformers that we can look at to see the way a camera can sexualize a woman doing a very kind of mundane, ordinary thing. But to a man, it's very sexy. And in this film, you see these women not just for who they are in terms of their character and their strengths and their weakness, but also their physical strength. And as they go through the cave, they go from kind of bundled up because they're wearing different layers of things, but especially Juno and Sarah at the very end, they've kind of taken off those windbreakers and whatever else they had on and they're in tank tops and pants and whatever gear they still have on them. And they're not sexualized, but you feel their power. You feel their physical power. And that physical power is proved through several of the characters as they get through the cave. And it's so refreshing that, you know, these women are doing this kind of extreme sport or this active adventure trip. And nothing's ever made where they're all sitting around being like, huh, we're a bunch of women. Whoever thought we could do this? It's like, no, this is what we do. It's assumed that they do. It's assumed that they always have. It's assumed that this is how they get their kicks. And there's no question about it. There's never any questioning or or justification of how or why they do it. That's right. And they're not superhuman chicks either. They're not the flip side of that coin that we talked about quite a bit in our Aliens episode, where a female heroine can sometimes be inflated to essentially be a man in a woman's body. These are six women who... I feel like I could know. And Neil Marshall reportedly consulted female friends to ensure that these women were authentic, that they didn't come off as cliched or stereotypical. And I think that's a huge part of what makes the film so great and unique and frankly so important. I also picked up on the fact that these women are very competent in traditionally male-dominated fields. We've got Becca with her incredible upper body strength required to do that crazy climb, Beth's anthropological look at the cave painting, Sam treating Holly's leg. They all have these strengths. They all bring something different to the table. They're very well-rounded. Yeah, I picked up on that. And I thought it was especially interesting very early on before they enter the cave. And they're kind of talking about the cave where they think Juno is going to take them. Uh, I believe it's Borum Caverns. And Holly in particular is lamenting how it's a big tourist trap. And she says, You're a caver, jumper, climber. Yeah, you just do it and not give a shite. Or the thing that's bigger than you will get you. Essentially, what these women have to do in my mind throughout the course of the film is actually give a shit. And it's that be careful what you wish for thing where Holly has kind of always lamented like, oh, I don't want to go on like this tourist trap of a cave dive or a splunking trip. I want to do something really big and really singular. And Juno gives it to them. You know, she offers them an opportunity at immortality through possibly getting through this cave system, which has never been explored before. But again, be careful what you wish for. 
So there's a lot that's really authentic about this film and the relationship between the women. I read that the women got together a couple of weeks before shooting and actually did go on a couple of nature adventure expeditions to get to know each other and get to bond. I feel that comes through very strongly. And another thing was they kept the creatures under wraps until shooting. So they really scared the shit out of them. That was actually pretty authentic. But what really struck me about this group of women is They reminded me of my own friends, but specifically my experience playing roller derby. I came to roller derby when I was about 25 years old, and it was my first time playing a competitive sport as an adult, basically, short of anything I was forced to play in phys ed in high school. And playing in a women's only team sport was an incredibly transformative experience for me. Like I've had close female friends all my life, but there's something very unique about meeting new women that you don't know and working together toward a common goal, especially in a sport that's as violent as roller derby, where you have to really depend on one another. Like I'm not a very large person. I skated as a jammer, and that meant that the entire other pack was trying to cream me to prevent me from scoring points. And so my pack is there to protect me. And I bonded with these women in ways that I couldn't have ever imagined. And I'm retired from the sport now. And I don't see those girls as often as I'd like. But when I do, that bond is always there. And it feels like we've been in the trenches together. And the reason The Descent made me think about roller derby is because in a team sport, you really have to drop your ego. You have to give yourself over to the team's goals and objectives and take your own glory out of it. In fact, there are even circumstances within the sport where one player can serve a penalty for another player. So here I am watching The Descent, and I'm watching these women who are friends, and even though spelunking isn't really what I would call a team sport, they're helping one another. They're encouraging one another. And then what brought them down was a player who didn't embody that team spirit. Throughout the trip, they're taking jabs at Juno for being all about herself, which obviously comes to a head when they discover that she's deceived them all. And that actually got me thinking more generally about the political left and the U.S. presidency. And, you know, I've heard a lot about the left being too splintered to be able to come together to accomplish their goals. And that was definitely a problem that I was thinking about a lot a couple of years back when Rob Ford was the mayor of Toronto. Like the reason that happened was because the left was split between the Liberal Party and the NDP. And indeed, even within feminism, the call for intersectionality has brought about some rifts within the movement. And so when it comes to the dissent, I feel such strong parallels here where if we want to achieve the equality that we're fighting for, we have to find a common ground to do it together. And there's no way out but through. And I love that this film can still evoke those questions and those emotions for me. After all these years, the political climate has obviously changed, but maybe not that much. Yeah, not that much. And I think to view the dissent through that kind of feminist lens, which I totally agree with you, Andrea, you've got these women who are in this impossible situation where the walls are kind of closing in around them. And then you've got these crawlers, as they're known in kind of fandom, the pale humanoid-esque things that attack them. And they're these essentially primitive or primordial things that come out and attack them. I mean, my God, not unlike a manifestation of, you know, the men's right movement or the uh, trolls that live online and like to give a shit every so often. Like, it does work at this kind of high-level metaphorical level. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I actually read an article that I will post in the show notes of this episode where somebody read it completely differently. 
they really interpreted the story to be a repudiation of feminism because it argues that women are their own worst enemies and because, you know, they're disloyal or adulterous or backstabbing, it's best that they kill each other and let men take care of their own interests. It couldn't be more opposite to how I read this film. Oh my God, calm down, whoever wrote that. I think feminism has a lot of tenets and some of them we have talked about on this podcast, but we do often get asked, like, how do you make a feminist film? And can you tell me if my film is feminist? And okay, no, we can't because we're busy. But (laughs) what I will tell everyone who is listening that to me, a feminist film is a film that shows women and men as human beings, as people with wants and desires. And those wants and desires can often be in conflict because holy shit, guys, that's what creates drama. So if To you, a feminist film is women kind of holding hands and getting along all the time. That's cool. That's one way to do it. I would rather see, for me, a film like Gone Girl, which has a super problematic antihero as a woman. And that, to me, is feminist because it shows a leading female character as something other than good and pure and route. Amy in Gone Girl is super interesting to me. And she is a justification for it. And I like that. And that's the thing. Like, I tweeted this and then I was texting with Andrea about this, was that on the rewatch of The Descent, and I've seen this movie so many times, it was one of those films that I was like, I almost don't know if I need to rewatch it for this, but I did. But I realized how much I liked Juno in this film. And I think I like her more than Sarah. And that is because she is very attractive. She's the kind of evil woman who will have an affair with your husband. And, you know, she stabs Beth in the neck. And she's, you know, all of these things. But I got a true sense of who Juno is. And that is through the direction, the writing, and the performance by Natalie Mendoza. And it's great because Juno is just, to me, a person with really shitty luck. She's incredibly capable, but I think she has shit luck and maybe not the best choices. She fell in love with a guy who was married. She wanted to do right by her friends and take them on this adventure that would allow them to do something really singular and once in a lifetime, and it fucking backfired in the worst way possible. But when things got bad, when things were rough, she never gave up on them. She never told them to shut up. She never stormed off. She was never distant. She was actively trying to fix things. And I have to respect that. And I like that they gave this kind of woman who would be such an outcast in any other film a real heart and a modus operandi that you don't usually see given to that type of character. And I really respect it. And I think she's fucking badass. And I really, really like Juno. She is fucking badass. I will give you that. I don't share your respect. I feel like when she does good, it's mostly motivated out of guilt and it's in many ways too little too late. But I do really appreciate that she's not a one-dimensional villain. She is not evil incarnate. She is not devoid of emotion or empathy or compassion. She demonstrates all those things. And I think Sarah demonstrates all those things too. She's not the flip side of that coin where she's a perfect angel. She fucks up a whole lot too. She's damaged. She's shattered. All of these women are very, very human. And I love that about this. And even the creatures, so to speak, these are very human creatures. It's definitely implied that these are probably, you know, cavemen that wound up in that cave for whatever reason and just evolved and adapted to their surroundings. And so 
as a result, there's no supernatural element. It's a crazy fucked up situation, but it's not that much of a reach in terms of suspension of disbelief. Now, the actress who played Sarah, Shauna McDonald, is quoted as saying that she didn't realize she was the heroine until she saw the end of the film. And I think that is so wonderful and that is so telling, the fact that she played her role not knowing that this role was supposed to be any kind of final girl because she's not a saint. She's really fucked up. She's least likely to survive in terms of the fact that she's the weakest mentally. She's been out of activity for at least a year, whereas the rest of these women are terribly fit. And she survives as long as she did because she got separated, which is really interesting to me. There's also this visual allegory to Apocalypse Now, also to Carrie, another woman who was pushed too far when she emerges from the bloodbath. And this is certainly her descent into the heart of darkness. This is her confronting the death, the betrayal, the terror. So in the theatrical ending, the film ends with her hallucination of bloody Juno. And Juno kind of has these like these bloody tears. And to me, that really evoked a kind of like a Madonna imagery. Totally. And I, I saw it as a symbol of the guilt that mm -hmm. Sarah will have to live with. That even if Juno deserved her fate, it suggests that... Even if killing Juno had let Sarah escape, she will never really escape what has happened down there. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, and it's kind of almost a throwaway scene, but nothing because this film is so tight is a throwaway scene. Before they descend into the cave, they all meet up at this cabin, they hang out, they have a night drinking wine and beer and like catching up as girlfriends do. And that's where you see the chemistry between the characters, between the actresses, and that feels really familiar. And right before Sarah goes to bed, I believe, she takes out a pill bottle, takes a pill, and goes to bed. And you can see there are these moments where she pulls away from the group and there's pain on her face. She's only a year out from the trauma. She's still grappling with it. She lost her husband and her daughter within seconds of each other. So there's a lot of stuff to unpack, as you know, a therapist would say. But to me, when she gets in that cave, there is literally no way out for her but to confront what is happening in front of her and what is happening in her own mind. And that's where you see she's hearing the voice of her daughter. She starts actually seeing her daughter at the very end. But what's important to note about Sarah's journey through her trauma in this cave is that it's the thing that allows her to see the crawlers before anyone else does. And she is the one who tells them about it. What are you doing? I just saw something ahead in the tunnel. Look at me. There's nothing there. And they all disbelieve her because they are in their own panic about getting out of this cave. So they don't have time for this. Beth, her closest ally, is trying to understand but needs to get Sarah moving. And I think that's what the cave does metaphorically is it pushes them all to their wits end and it shows us who they really are. You know, you see alliances form and alliances fall apart. And that to me is the great use of a metaphor that not only enhances elements of the story but functions as a really important narrative device. That's right. And I think it's so telling that in that scene in the cabin, people try to approach her about the topic. People try to say, how are you doing? How are you coping? I'm sorry I wasn't there. And she doesn't want to hear it for the whole beginning of the film. She doesn't want to hear it. And then, of course, in the end, she's like, okay, I'm fucked. You're fucked. We're fucked. Let's get at it. The only time she really hears someone when they talk to her about it is when they're kind of going through that first tight pass of the cave. 
and they all kind of get through. They're pushing their gear through. They don't quite realize how bad the situation is yet. But the cave starts collapsing and Sarah's stuck. Beth goes in to get her and Sarah is freaking out and Beth is trying to calm her down. Listen to me. What are you afraid of? What are you so afraid of? You can move. Sarah, look at me. Look at me. Listen, the worst thing that could have happened to you has already happened, okay? And you're still here. This is just a poxy cave, and there's nothing left to be afraid of, I promise, okay? Again, it's just in that moment, it's hinted at throughout the film that Beth is very protective of Sarah. But the fact that Beth can reach Sarah in that moment really dictates to the audience and to the characters around them how important Beth's relationship is to Sarah. And my sense is that throughout this year, they're both Scottish, they all live in Scotland, Beth was the one who pulled her through that year. Beth was the person going to Sarah's house every day, like bringing her meals, talking to her, crying with her, taking care of her, slowly getting her out of the house. And Beth won't drop that caretaker position. She just, she can't and she won't. She doesn't want to. And I think for anyone out there who has close friends, you wouldn't do that to your friend either. You stick with them through this stuff because that's what friends are. And then when Beth dies accidentally at the hands of Juno, which to me is just, God, I still... That part is good. I remember when I saw it in theaters, it felt like someone punched me in the stomach. Like it was such a guttural reaction I had to it because not only is it tragic because... Beth is a great character. She's really friendly and warm and smart, and you want her around, but it's by an accident. Oh, yeah. You feel such pathos for Juno. And the way that Marshall shoots it makes it clear that it is an accident because he's setting it all up in Juno's point of view, that she's killing a couple crawlers. She's doing it. She's doing it. She's going to save herself. And then the camera kind of rushes towards Juno like a crawler would, and then she turns around and reacts. And then it's only when the camera breaks away from that point of view back to the opposite camera from Beth's point of view that you see that it's Juno. So I think that's a really brilliant setup by a director and again a really simple one that dictates how that confusion happened in a really clear and concise way. And it's after Sarah loses Beth and you know the meds have worn off and everything is stripped away from her that she can't hide from it anymore. And I don't know if it's, I should say, hiding so much as coping. Mm -hmm. We all develop coping mechanisms when we deal with trauma. And sometimes coping can be, you know, mental blocks you put up. Sometimes they can be through medication. You cope through relationships. You cope through a number of different things. But when those are stripped away, you're only left with yourself. And that's what Sarah ultimately has to come up against. Right. And it's interesting that when Sarah questions Juno. What about Beth? Make it. So I die. Juno has a chance there and she doesn't take it, but neither does Sarah call her out. Sarah accepts that and kind of mulls it over. And so insofar as this is obviously a very emotional time for her, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going through her head. She hasn't taken her meds. She's dehydrated. She's covered in creature shit. 
you really get the sense that her final goodbye to Juno, that pickaxe in the leg, was a calculated move. She decided that this is what she's going to do. She used Juno to help her get that far. And then when it became apparent that she should use her to be able to try and get out, she takes that. And I think these are really raw human decisions that it's hard for us to understand. But when we're watching people in this impossible situation, it's really gut-wrenching. Yeah, and I will say this in Juno's defense, my defense of a fictional character. If I saw a way out of this cave and I was really close to getting out, I wouldn't use this as the point in time to be like, actually, I super accidentally killed Beth. Please don't be mad at me. I'd maybe mention that at the hospital if I did it all. If someone accidentally pickaxed you in the throat, they would have gotten that axe in the face and not the leg. Aww. Because you'd have to reach so high up to do it to anyone else. Being nice. <laughs> One thing I will mention before we kind of get on to a few of the other topics in this film is I wanted to address, now that we've talked about a few of the characteristics and some of the feminist leanings of this film, my interpretation of the two endings. And that would be that in the North American version or the theatrical version, where it ends with Juno and Sarah in the car, is that Sarah almost has a brand new trauma to contend with. She's face down a fear. She's face down everything that happened. And she's finally kind of not that she needed to, but like taken ownership and and seen it and it's happened to her. And now she's experienced something, maybe not worse, but equally traumatic on another level. Yeah. Yeah, not a spa day. But then in the UK ending or the longer ending where Sarah is still in the cave, that is Sarah, to me, giving into her illusions and her distress and her trauma. And to her in that moment, she's giving in to the delusion of her daughter is there. And she's complete to give up on her life and give up on anything else that surrounds her and not try to fight for anything more. She is content in this illusion with this daughter that isn't really there. Mm -hmm. And both endings are super tragic, but in different ways. So now I kind of want to delve, shall we say, into something I would almost consider the sixth character in this film, to use a cliche, the cave. Now, the cave is anonymous, but super textual. It's tactile, but it feels ongoing. It feels like it never ends. And again, that's up to the production design and Neil Marshall's direction and the editing that pulls together a cave that really situates the film in a really tactile place. And what I love about the cave in this film that not all directors get when they capture a cave is it can go from really tight spaces, really claustrophobic spaces into huge cavernous spaces. And that actually gave me a much better sense of what caves are like, having never gone spelunking myself. But yeah, it, it feels a lot more real. And there have been some Hollywood films that deal in caves and stuff like that. And they always feel like they're on a big soundstage because they are. And I know that there is a history in the production that they were talking about maybe shooting in a cave, but that would have been way too problematic. So they built like 18 sets and just lit them differently and shot from different angles and had them do it like that, which fucking works. I definitely felt like I was in this huge cave that was terrifying and felt like it didn't end. That's right. And again, that stupid sequel, that's another thing that they did totally wrong. The cave was way too well lit. You always had a sense of where its edges were. And so the peril, even though they replicated scenes of claustrophobia, there's a scene where a character has to climb out of a really tight situation. Those parts of the movie really get me. They're getting me right now just talking about it. 
Well, and I think it's important that, you know, Andrea already said the term once already, and that's cavemen or cavewomen. So humanity is down with caves. We love a good cave. We came out of caves. I mean, we didn't. We, we got in there, and then we hung out there for a while, and then we came out. Well, most of us. Most of us. Not all of us. So I did a bit of research on this, as I am wont to do on the Faculty of Horror, and the human occupation of cave actually goes back to the Paleolithic period, and that would be anywhere from 2 million years ago to 10,000 years ago. So we're covering a pretty big span here, and that is because, as you've probably already guessed, they are natural shelters. When you have inclement weather, when you have rain or cold or hot, you can go to a cave and it's okay there. And one of the things that is needed within a cave to survive and to make a home out of there is fire because fire can, of course, drive out any predators who are in there. So that's a lot of the research that archaeologists do. And the reason archaeologists like caves so much is because they are covered and sheltered. They often preserve a lot of different elements that aren't mm. preserved when they're out there in the natural world. Right. Hence, you see the women can discover things like old military helmets, old climbing gear, and then, of course, the cave painting, which is a really huge plot point in the film. And then also caves have been used in the last few centuries as ways to run military operations, countercurrent to enemies, basically create surprises where there might not be a surprise. And now in our present day, caves are primarily used by scientists and adventure climbers. And I thought a lot about extreme sports, which is what I would consider splunking yeah. or potholing, as it is known in the UK and Ireland. Potholing? Potholing. Another fun fact from the Faculty of Horror. And what I think The Descent does really brilliantly on yet another level this film works on is it's a mixture of the kind of hubris of humanity is, you know, we've conquered this shit. We know what to do. But can we skate on that edge a little bit? Can we go to where it's a little bit scary but still come out on the other side and have great stories to tell? And I think that's really clearly embodied in the character of Holly. She's so mouthy and charming, but she's really kind of that young kid who's like, oh, you seen that fucking horror movie? That horror movie is not scary. This is a scary horror movie. Movie. Like, it's that kind of attitude, and that's what gets her into trouble is that hubris because she is the first one to run when she thinks there's a way out. And what people don't know and what this film doesn't allude to, but I would assume the characters know as their actions seem to be in line with this way of thinking, is that when you go splunking or potholing or caving or whatever it is you want to do, the ecosystem of the cave is more important than human life because it is a delicate ecosystem. So if you're going through something like they allude to in the film, which is Borum Taverns, which is kind of a touristy thing, that's probably set up. So there's like a rope and you're just like going along and you're doing this so you don't fuck with anything going on down there mm -hmm. because these are still really important factors to local habitats and animals and things like that. They're sources of water, shelter, things like that. So you can't really fuck with them that much, nor should you. And I like that the descent, without ever explicitly stating it, there's no one standing around going, so remember, guys, when we go into this cave, we can't do X, Y, and Z or A, B, and C. They just do it. And we kind of learn through osmosis. But what I like is that it goes from this kind of extreme sport, leisure activity, because we have, in our own minds, conquered this cave system or conquered 
many cave systems mm-hmm. that we can conquer any of them. And then it forces these women into that kind of primitive primordial state. Mm-hmm. Juno and Sarah in particular. Sarah really particularly has to go through a transformation in order to survive. And again, what's important to note in this film is that the film is about an hour and 40 minutes and the crawlers don't show up until about 40 minutes in. And right before they do, you have the cave painting scene where they use the flare and Beth shows them, look, there is another way out. We can get out of here. Really lovely, Beth, but it's fucking useless. No, look at it. What do you see? But the mountain, the cave, and there's two entrances. This means there's another way out? Let's find out. And then in the next cavernous place they get into, that is when the crawlers attack. So it's the second that they kind of make that connection to shit, there were people here before. Why have we never heard about this? Though it's never explicitly stated, there is that kind of feeling of dread where you're like, oh, fuck, shit's getting bad. Mm-hmm. But if you're in that situation, you can't think about it. You just do. So again, this film does a lot with a very shorthand. It's true. And we've talked in this podcast about how women are associated with nature. Women are associated with the earth. They're more in touch with these natural laws and stuff. So even the very act of going down into a cave, obviously, it's the opposite of a phallic symbol. I don't even know the term. A vaginal symbol? Vaginal urethra. (laughs) Urethrian. But they're going down. They're going underground. We think of progress and we think of technology as always reaching up, as we're reaching for the stars and we're going to get into space and we're going to build skyscrapers higher and higher to go down, to enter the depths. There's so much meaning there. There's so much metaphor. Yeah, because that should be the easiest thing to accomplish. And these women, you know, throughout that first 40 minutes of the film before the crawlers show up in any real way, the cave is their biggest obstacle. And the cave is a mighty obstacle. And you're shown that time and again from when the pass almost collapses on Sarah to when they can't get a line through right away to that pass that they have to do. And they just have to do all this like upper arm, like climbing to like get through it. And it's fucking intense. It is intense. And it's impossible. Like when they came to that chasm, I was like, well, they're fucked. Yeah. I would be like, all right, Andrea, can we hit each other with rocks in the head at the same time? And then, of course, the cave works as a really great narrative device that just shows these women as they truly are. Another kind of less maybe cinematic moment is after the first attack and all the women separate and Juno is and has been throughout the whole trip very concerned about Sarah. So she's off looking for Sarah. And Becca and Sam are still together and they're sisters and they're just trying to get through it together. And they make a lot of great decisions. They're working really well together as a team. And they're the first to figure out that if you can be quiet and not move, the crawlers can't find you. I thought Sarah was the first to determine that they were blind. Was she? I mean, they all discover it in their own time, which is another thing that I really love about this film is there's no one brainiac. Like, Mm -hmm. they don't really give that award to any one person who it's like, oh, good for you. You solved it. They all kind of came to that conclusion on their own. There's that scene where Becca and Sam are huddled in that narrow area and Sam's watch goes off. That's what I'm thinking of. They throw the watch and they're just kind of standing there holding each other, waiting for the crawler to pass. And the crawler does. And they hear Juno in the distance. Juno. No, she's making she'll bring every one of those things down on her head. As long as it's not on mine. So there is that sense of, you know, you can have alliances, but you will also let someone else fall. 
because I think they all, as we were saying earlier, have a really clear suspicion around Juno now. And I think maybe they've always not loved how outspoken and ambitious or outgoing she is and and how dominating she is in terms of her personality. Or the fact that she led them into a cave that was never explored and has no map and no plan to get out. Are you kidding? Not a problem. Still not mad at her. Yeah, you're right. Just her strong personality. (laughs) Another element to add into the cave discussion, which is something we haven't mentioned already in this episode, is the camcorder. I believe it's Holly's camcorder and she's holding it and taking it around to get cool shots. And, you know, obviously, as you would as a kind of adrenaline junkie, if there's something really cool you do, you want to capture that. Fair enough. And then as it gets darker and darker, they have to use said camera to actually see in the dark and they use the infrared lens. And as Juno mentions, the batteries are dying on their flashlights, on their headlamps that they all have on their helmets. And so Sarah winds up using the camcorder quite a bit, especially when she's trapped in that cave after Beth dies, after she finally has to kill like her best friend. And what I thought was, again, a very, I would say on one hand, pretty subtle illusion. But Sarah goes from using the camera to see and to protect herself Two, dropping the camera, leaving it behind, and then she emerges rebirthed from the shitty blood pool as a primitive person. So she has eschewed technology. She has eschewed all those things that have kept her alive but kept her hiding for the whole time. And now she's no longer willing to hide and she's willing to face the monsters both in terms of the crawlers and in terms of her past because she does actually have to make a choice to believe Beth and to understand that in this moment a lot of what she believed about her past life wasn't true. Mm -hmm. Now, I've mentioned the sequel a couple of times disparagingly in this episode, and it is kind of a warm, wet piece of crap. But there are a couple of things that it does that, to me, make it worth a watch. It does a couple of things kind of well. And one of the things it does well is the recovery of that camcorder and how that plays into it. Now, I love how in the original film – the camcorder and all the different flares kind of lend each scene its own color. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a red room and then there's a green room with a green flare and whatever. The sequel doesn't really do that, but it does pick up a couple of threads in that you encounter the corpses of Becca, Sam, and Holly. And wouldn't you know it, you run into Juno. And two days later, she's still kicking ass in that cave. She's like the evil queen of the crawlers. She's so badass. And she looks great. Well, I've got to say that in the second film, when you were talking about the male gaze and about how it didn't really apply in the first, in the second, I felt like there were some shots Totally of applies in this and one. And her arms and her legs. And look how toned. And I get it. She's fucking smoke show. Yeah, but again, the first one, I really didn't feel that, and I totally agree. There is a kind of weird fetishization of Juno, and yeah, she's covered in dirt, but pretty sure that dirt still has some mascara in it. And uh, her hair is down, but it's that weird kind of messy down that they like to do in like sci-fi shows like oh she's primitive and weird but oh my god are those perfect curls it's so fucked up that we can pick up on those cues from something as simple as a messy hairdo yeah like like, i never look at a dude's hair and i'm like what is that telling me about him yeah because i never wake up in the morning and like oh my god my hair just looks amazing on its own so naturally it's like i have to tame this beast into submission The Descent Part 2, as it is called, picks up with Sarah getting picked up by cops or authorities, getting put in a hospital, and the news is covering this case of the missing women because Juno is the daughter of a senator? 
And so that yields all of this importance on going back into the caves and finding them. And the cops kind of think Sarah might be involved or is she, but they really need her to go back down there like a day after she got out to totally help them find them. So Sarah doesn't seem to remember anything. And then she goes down with the cops and yeah. As Andrea said, wouldn't you know it, they start getting picked off one by one. They find Juno. Juno is badass, still with a massive wound in her leg, but she is surviving and she is trying to get through. Again, I don't like this movie. I think it just kind of exists as something that's there. I'm not totally offended by it. I was just like, Mah. I liked the closure that they gave Juno and Sarah because I think, again, I'm apparently a super big Juno apologist, but it was like Sarah made peace with it and Juno apologized. And I actually got a little emotional when uh, Juno is dying and Juno has a great death in that film. And I really liked at the end when Sarah was holding her and mourning her friend and put the necklace that Sarah's husband gave to Juno back in Juno's hand because... Let's face it, it's an ugly fucking pendant with a terrible saying on it that, you know, would mean more to Juno than it would to Sarah. The look wow. Andrea is giving me right I'm now. I'm horrified. Are I you? thought the characters of Sarah and Juno were both butchered by that ending. I thought they were both reduced to shitty saccharine archetypes and we were friends all along. Let's just be friends. Yeah, I just, I again, super Juno apologist. I just like that they kind of acknowledge that Juno had real feelings in that and had a real investment. I don't think it was like well done, but I would take that over. Um, no, I guess it's just there, so I'll just take it. Sarah was a disaster. Oh, in this she's terrible. Film. She in this is film. hysterical. She is silent when she should be speaking. All of her decision making is really questionable, and I felt very, very removed. And so it's it's just a shame. The only reason that film can exist like it did is because the actress went back for it. And actually, I wanted to talk a bit about the actors. All six women in the original film were six relatively unknown actors. And I think that was a really good call because with pop culture such as it is, it's kind of hard to watch Angelina Jolie in a movie without some reference to her celebrity and the little snippets of her personal life that we see pasted all over the tabloids. Like we don't associate these women's faces with being good girls or bad girls or, or any kind of archetype. They're blank slates and the film just really fills in all the gaps. The second movie tries to draw a strong character out of the female cop whose mm -hmm. name I can't recall. I don't think she had a name. I'm sure no, she, she did. No, she did. I just – I also cannot remember it right now. She had a name and she had a daughter <laughs> and she had a bit of an arc, I guess. She kind of had this situation where she was – brought along to be another woman, to be an empathetic woman for Sarah to maybe draw well, something out of and her. And to have a daughter to trigger Sarah's own memories and pain about her own daughter. And that, to me, felt very cheap. Well, why else does anyone want to survive? I don't know how I go on every day without a daughter. <laughs> anyway, do you have anything else to say about that? No. I hope they don't make any more. They didn't, did they? No. I, I think The Descent 2 or The Descent Part 2 was very poorly received. You really don't hear anyone talking about it for good reason. Uh, it's best to leave certain caves alone and unchecked. And I think everyone loves the original so much that that's kind of where it starts and ends for a lot of people. Oh, but we should maybe mention the stupid ending. 
which it's an oh, ending that I would normally yeah. love. That Descent 2 ends with this female cop getting out. And she's out and she's running and she's, oh, my God, I'm free. And it's just like that Sarah hallucination thing to the point that I thought she was going to encounter Bloody Juno and then wake up back in the cave. But no, she encounters this hillbilly character that we see at the beginning of the film who smashes her in the head with a shovel, drags her body back to the opening of the cave and... There it is. There is this implication that there's some kind of conspiracy, that people are in cahoots with these creatures, that people are feeding people to these creatures because apparently the giant caribou and deer that they're lugging down there aren't enough and why the fuck and who knows and who cares. Yeah, that kind of – twist ending-ish, I guess, lends itself much more to a kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre feel or a wrong turn feel that there's this kind of internal rural conspiracy about this way of life and no one fucks with this way of life and you're not going to get out and tell everyone about this, so you're going to go back in. Yeah, that definitely just felt like a dumb, dumb um, Hollywoodized or Hollywood-ish. Like, this movie was made in a town just outside of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it went straight to VOD. Yep. And it remains back down there in the cave with its ghost daughter. Where it belongs. So overall, looking back on this film 10 years later, you know, there's some questionable green screen that maybe if I'm nitpicking, but that is it. This film holds up. This film is... Quite simply the shit, if you hadn't seen this film and you watched it in advance of this podcast to prepare, I want to say both you're welcome and I'm sorry. It's fucking terrifying. Yeah, and it's not terrifying in a way that like something like Martyrs is, where it's this emotional rigmarole that you go through to get to the end of it. It's a very visceral experience, and it's visceral on an emotional level and a physical level. And I think the film balances a lot of really strong things very well. So I think that's why it remains. That's why a lot of people like it. That's why a lot of people go back to it, because I think the first time you watch it, you're really ensconced in the jump scares, which are great, and the Mm -hmm. physical terror of, you know, not only the cave, but the crawlers. And then you have this emotional attachment and you go back and revisit it because you want to explore that emotional attachment. Well, yeah. And I feel like almost the way you did with Juno is you can go back and if you really pay attention to a certain character, you can pick up on all these little nuggets. Like we said earlier that Neil Marshall doesn't spend a whole lot of time on backstory. He gets right to it. But if you pay attention... Every single line is a learning. There's the dynamic between the two sisters. There's the Holly-Juno relationship. There's Beth and everybody else. All of that is in there, and every time I watch it, I get something new out of it. So that's it, guys. That's our descent into the depths of this movie. We hope you enjoyed it. Do we have any news? Do we have any announcements? We did this on social media. So if you're not already following us on Facebook and Twitter, please do. That's where we drop a lot of news, a lot of fun stuff. But I want to audibly, I guess, congratulate my co-host on her amazing announcement that just came out this week. If you didn't already hear, if you didn't know, Andrea Rita Subasati, as I learned last episode, is the executive editor of Rumorg magazine. This is so huge. I am so pumped. Congratulations. I, I'm just so fucking happy for you, dude. And yes. um, I think a lot of our listeners are too. You work so hard and uh, you're so creative and Thank wonderful. You. And um, 
You're going to do great things. When that news dropped, I knew that nobody would be more excited than our Faculty of Horror listeners. And the outpouring of support and congratulations that came from that Facebook post was pretty overwhelming. And I have all of you to thank for this, really, because I I think this podcast has been an incredible journey. It's been four years of getting together with my good friend and talking horror the way I want to talk horror, the way she wants to talk horror, the way we didn't see out there ever. And this podcast really emboldened me. It really gave me a voice. It gave me an outlet where I felt like I could talk about horror the way I wanted. And so for the podcast to have come as far as it did in four years has been so gratifying. And it really prepared me for what lies ahead. Yeah. And so all that going to say, Andrew is busy. We're all always busy as we all are. Everyone, you guys listening, you're all busy. But nothing is going to change with the Faculty of Horror. Everything is operating as usual. But make sure you are following Andrea on all of her social media outlets. Your Lady Hellbat on Facebook, at Necromandria on Twitter, at Necromandria on Instagram. So if you want to get any of those updates, we'll probably post the big ones on Faculty of Horror. But definitely follow along with Andrea if you aren't already to get all those hot tips fresh from the presses. And uh, yeah, very excited. When does your first issue drop? The May-June issue will be my first as executive editor. I can't wait. So I think that's all of our announcements for this episode. As always, if you like what we do, if you're into it and you want to help, great thing to do if you haven't already is drop us a review on iTunes. That's a big help from wherever you are. It all goes into the magical Willy Wonka system that is Apple's iTunes and helps push us up the ladder. And now, next episode. Oh, boy. Um, this episode felt heavy. The next episode might feel heavier, but we're going to get through this, guys. We're going to get through it all together. This has been another heavily requested topic for us. So in the next episode, we are going to be talking rape revenge films. That's right. So consider this your trigger warning. We will do appropriate trigger warnings as they come in the next episode. We are very sensitive to that, and we are very appreciative that this is going to be a really dark and complex topic. We will give it all the respect that it's due, the respect that maybe the films we're talking about don't necessarily do it, but we are going to be talking about I Spit on Your Grave and L, so kind of an OG rape revenge classic with a newer permutation. I actually haven't seen L yet, so I'm going to be watching it for the podcast. Yeah, Andrea uh, suggested that we kind of finally tackle this one, and I said, if we're going to do it, we have to talk about L, and that's E L-L-E, the French version of She. And this is a 2016 film directed by kind of Hollywood bad boy, Paul Verhoeven. And currently, as we record this early mid-February, Isabel Huppert, who plays the titular L in L, is nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars. So if you're hearing a bit about L, it is out there in the world through any means you can get it, on demand, iTunes, all that kind of good stuff. So I've seen it. I really enjoyed it. That's why I want to talk about it, because I think it adds something different to the conversation. But again, if this isn't your bag, if this is not the boat you want to get on, feel free to opt out, and we will be back to other fun programming the month after. That's right. And we'll see you in April. But for today, office hours are closed.
Your lips couldn't say it. 